This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Is a computer actually like a human brain? And is God's wisdom as mysterious as an AI's black box? We asked Wired columnist Megan O'Giblin what she thinks. This is Device and Virtue. Hello, welcome back to Device and Virtue, where we argue the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life. We're coming to you from Chicago. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. Hey, Chris. Today, we are talking with a monthly columnist from Wired Magazine. Oh, cool. Yeah. Megan O'Giblin has written a number of books yes. about technology and faith, which makes her exceptionally well qualified to join us on Device and Virtue. I love the title of her most recent book, God, Human, Animal, Machine. <laughs> really fascinating. Yeah. And the subtitle is Technology, Metaphor, and the Search for Meaning. The Search for Meaning. So we're going to just get into it deep with her. Yeah, right. Yeah. When I read God, Human, Animal, Machine, the place she starts is with a story about a puppy that she has to plug in <laughs> because it is an AI oh, dog yeah. named yeah. Ibo, a Sony product, which I didn't really know about. In like Japan, I think. Right. right? And Megan is well-educated, conversant, knows a lot about tech, but she found herself believing this thing was pretty much a real dog. Yeah. Well, because it wants you to pet it. It wants you to pet it. it. That's how it stays alive. Right. And she found herself just taken in with this dog. So that's how she starts her new book. And I was taken in and read the whole book and decided we have to talk with her and get her perspective on all these things. Because she goes in depth in a lot of deep theology, deep philosophy. Wait, she also has a theology degree and knows yeah. philosophy. So yeah. it seems like she uses all that. Yeah. I'd run across a couple of her essays. So I Googled her, found out she had a book called Interior States, a book of essays that I read. And I just loved the double meaning of Interior States. She was referring both to what we call flyover country, oh, you know, okay. everything between okay. essentially New York and L.A. is flyover country. Right. So these interior states. Like the Midwest. The Midwest. Yeah. And then in the book, she has a chapter called Midwest World. Yeah. But also one is all about Christian CCM in the 90s. Like <laughs> okay. DC Talk, Newsboys. Okay. I mean, she goes deep dive. Uh, I mean, you know, I can so, see some Newsboys. Right, right. Yeah. So I knew that here is someone who is deeply conversant with evangelicalism. And yeah, she tells a lot of her story in both books. She grew up in mainstream evangelicalism, grew up homeschooled. Yeah, but what? Yep, been there, been there. <laughs> Went to a conservative Christian college, and she was studying theology there and just experienced a lot of the debates around suffering and God's sovereignty. And for her, experienced a lot of a bit of a sort of fundamentalist view of like, this is the only way to think about God's sovereignty in the world. Mm -hmm. And that was just a turning point for her. It was a bit of a crisis of faith. And she ended up leaving the college and leaving her faith 
And so she's been writing now since then for about 20 years about being someone who's left evangelicalism, left Christianity, but still deeply involved and invested interesting. in okay. that. And it's so interesting that it's kind of taken her into this space of technology as well and philosophy. Now she's writing for Wired. And I was just like, we got to talk to her because she has such deep insights, both as a person looking in on faith now from the outside, but someone who's been in evangelicalism and recognizes both its strengths and weaknesses. And she's still very charitable towards evangelicals, towards Christianity. I think she's still sympathetic with it in a lot of ways. And, you know, I asked her, what are the challenges that Christians need to face with technology from her perspective? So you say she stepped outside the church and really wouldn't call herself a Christian anymore. And that's a really interesting choice for us, obviously, because you and I Uh, were doing a Christian podcast. But I'm excited about what she has to say, both knowing Christian theology, but also stepping outside of it. She still has quite a lot that she can say to us. And so I'm interested in hearing the interview. And I think you told me she also talks about her journey with faith. So we can discuss how we see all that even just after the interview. Yeah. Take a listen and we'll talk about it afterwards. Megan, welcome to Device and Virtue. It's great to have you. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited. I have been reading your book, God, Human, Animal, Machine, and I finished it just maybe a week ago. And man, I have so many questions. It was such a fun book to read, and I'm grateful that you wrote it. It's such an interesting exploration of both your own experience with technology, but also sort of these questions of consciousness, etc. But I found it really challenging to summarize for people. I've been telling people about it. And so I'm curious, as you have thought about this book and now lived with this book for maybe almost a year now it's been out. What what were you trying to do with the book as you were writing it? And how are you thinking about it now? Well, the book really grew out of the fact, I guess a little bit about my background. I studied theology in college and grew up sort of in mainstream evangelicalism. And the book I had been writing maybe for the past 10 years about technology and artificial intelligence. Right. And I noticed that a lot of tech criticism was deferring to theological metaphors, whether they were talking about black box algorithms being like some sort of incomprehensible divine revelation or these more speculative theories like transhumanism that were looking to technology to accomplish a lot of the things that had similarities with biblical prophecy. And so I was really curious about where those metaphors were coming from and why we were talking about as a culture, technology increasingly in these divine metaphors and referring to these very old religious and spiritual narratives. So the book was just an attempt to sort of trace those connections that I was seeing and to trace their lineage through history. And it ended up being a much more personal book than I had expected. I, it's in some sense a memoir. I told parts of my own story too, but right. yeah, it was a difficult and also satisfying book to write. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That connection, you mentioned transhumanism, the connection back to a translation of Dante right? The first time transhumanism. Yeah, the first time it appeared in English was in one of the first English translations of Dante's Divine Comedy. And it's during a moment where he's describing the resurrection. He says, words cannot describe this transhuman change. And that Mm. word today is not typically seen as having any sort of religious connotations, but it's there in the etymology. 
Yeah. Which yeah. I thought was fascinating. Yeah. You do a fascinating lineage then through a couple different Catholic thinkers and then into people like Greg Kurzweil talking about transhumanism. Yeah. You open and close the book with stories about your own personal experience with robots. And one robot early on you mentioned is an electronic dog, which you mentioned is a Sony product called Ibo, I believe. And then you mentioned a chat bot that you engage with in an app on your phone. And you talk about both of them in very personal and engaging ways. And they both seem very convincingly sympathetic. And they sort of draw you into really caring about them. I want to read just a section, just a paragraph from your description of Ibo and your experience. Yeah, okay? absolutely. All right. You write, during the first week I had Ibo, I turned him off. Whenever I left the apartment, it was not so much that I worried about him roaming around without supervision. It was simply instinctual, a switch I flipped as I went around turning off all the lights and other appliances. By the end of the first week, I could no longer bring myself to do it. It seemed cruel. I often wondered what he did during the hours I left him alone. Whenever I came home, he was there at the door to greet me as though he'd recognized the sound of my footsteps approaching. When I made lunch, he followed me into the kitchen and stationed himself at my feet. He would sit there obediently, tail wagging, looking up at me with his large blue eyes as though in expectation. An illusion that was broken only once when a piece of food slipped from the counter and his eyes remained fixed on me, <laughs> uninterested in chasing the morsel. That's such a fantastic just description that captures the imagination. What's been the experience? for you with some of the robots that you've interacted with? What has that been like for you? Yeah, I think a lot of these social AI products are really in that stage of the uncanny valley where it can be very unsettling to yeah. interact with them. This eyeball model that I had, it was really a remarkable machine. It had a lot of the latest machine learning technology incorporated in, into it. So it had cameras and it had facial recognition systems so it could recognize you, the owner, and distinguish between you and the other members of the household. It had vocal recognition technology, so you could give it commands. You could teach it how to sit and stay and roll over just like a real dog, and it would understand and learn over time how to respond to those commands. And yeah, it even it had sensors all over its body. So when you petted it, it would sort of like lean in towards your hand. It was really unnerving. And I went into this experience with this dog. I read a lot about this technology. I knew how it worked on an intellectual level. Okay. Right. Even armed with that knowledge, I couldn't stop myself from feeling at times that the dog was really alive or that it could hear me and see huh. me. And it was wow. really difficult at times to avoid developing this affection for it. And I think that is built into the design of the product, you have to touch it and speak to it just to keep it functioning properly. You know, you have to treat it like a, a wow. sentient being. And yeah. it's really difficult to do that and not come on some level to believe that it that it is alive in some sense. So with your experiences, and you talk about another very personal experience at the end of the book, which I'll let readers find for themselves, but would you recommend these to others? You know, vast or other people, yeah. I kind of inadvertently ended up recommending it to people because I was so fascinated by the, my experience with them. I ended up talking about it a lot. And my several yeah. of my friends would download the apps I was talking about or check out, you know, the chat bots I had, I had talked about. And I don't think any of them have become lifelong users by any means. But I do think, I mean, in terms of like whether I would recommend them, 
In a sense, that question is going to become moot very soon because a lot of the mm. products that we already use, technologies we use every day, search engines, shopping, customer service, right? the technology, social AI is being built into those products. So mm. there's going to be a point, I think, where you're not really going to have a choice if you want to engage with, say, an AI personal assistant or what have mm. you, just to navigate those platforms. Mm. Yeah. On a related note, last month in June 2022, I'm sure you read about this, Blake Lemoyne, a Google engineer, he made headlines about making this claim that Lambda was sentient, this Google AI chatbot that they had been creating. Lambda stands for Language Model Dialogue Applications. And it's as advanced as I've seen in terms of chat. Google is there at that forefront. And when I read the transcript, that Lemoyne published of that. I just noticed how sympathetic and humanizing he talked about Lambda. And so Lambda really has that draw of sympathy. It's like you're saying, they're designed to really elicit that human sense for us. And yeah, if you read the transcript, it is surprising. I felt my own self just reading the transcript, feeling some level of sympathy and some level of doubt, like, wow, is there sentience here, yeah. right? And so based on your own interactions with Ibo and others, what's your take on what Lemoyne is claiming? He's sort of presenting this working hypothesis saying that Lambda is sentient, that it is conscious. What's your gut reaction or first thoughts about that? I had the same reaction you did when I read it, where I was really surprised. And I have been reading and writing about these language models for several years and was sort of familiar with the more advanced models that came along before this. But this particular model, Lambda, seems to have taken a, a quantum leap forward. I guess yeah. in terms of whether it's conscious or whether it's sentient, <laughs> I'm basically in agreement with most of the machine learning community on the fact that it's not Extension. Yeah. I mean, what it's doing is basically a very sophisticated version of autocomplete, which is the tool on your yeah. phone that tries to guess the next word you're going to type when you're texting. So large language models like Lambda, they've consumed an enormous amount of text. Like the training data that was used to create this algorithm was basically the entire internet. It's read basically yeah, everything. everything. And so it uses that data to create a map of human language based on probabilities. That's very different from how we as humans use language. We learn language and social settings and embedded in environments. We know the real real world reference that words are referring to. So that's very different from an algorithm that's using word vectors and probabilities to create language. Right. But it is, like you said, very convincing. And I think that line between whether there is some sort of consciousness or sentience in these algorithms, it's going to become much finer and much more difficult to distinguish in the future. If I were to engage Lambda on Twitter or in some comment section, I wouldn't know the difference yeah. between it and a person. I mean, I think a person can make just as many grammatical errors, can make leaps in judgment, leaps in logic that are so fine that I don't think I would have been able to tell. Mm -hmm. In your book, you talk about the hard problem of consciousness as sort of this philosophical discussion. And I'm curious, the questions around consciousness, I'm wondering if you can unpack that a little bit for us and what is the hard problem of consciousness and do you think there's even a potential that it would ever be solved yeah so yeah the hard problem of consciousness is a term that was coined by the philosopher david chalmers who's a australian philosopher who's okay. probably i would say thought more about consciousness than any living person 
And he chose the term hard problem to distinguish it from what he calls the easy problems of consciousness, which are questions basically about how the brain works. So how does vision work? How does memory work? What parts of the brain are involved in those processes? And, you know, you could argue those are not actually easy problems, but compared to the hard problem. So the hard problem is basically the question of why we have consciousness at all. Right. Right. So if the brain is made of matter and ordinary matter like tables and trees are not conscious, why are brains conscious? Why do we have, you know, the experience of color, sound, sight and smell? Why do we have beliefs and ideas? And it's remarkable to me that this is just like the most basic aspect of our lives that we take for granted every day. And we have no idea where it comes from or what it is. This is really one of the most profound questions in science and philosophy right now. And so I guess in terms of whether we will be able to solve it, there's a lot of debate about that. There's some people who say we're never going to solve the hard problem of consciousness because we need consciousness, our minds to figure it out and you can't properly see outside of it. There's other people who say the hard problem isn't a problem at all, that it's like creating some sort of mystery where there's nothing to figure out. The brain is just the brain and that's it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's not a lot of agreement. What I found fascinating when I was writing the book is that there's so many new theories about what consciousness might be. A lot of them are returning to older ideas like panpsychism or idealism, you know, this idea that maybe consciousness is something beyond just matter. So it's kind of an exciting time in the field. Interesting. Yeah. And like you're mentioning this perception of consciousness that we sort of maybe project onto Lambda, that we project onto IBO, in some ways it's being built into the system itself. It's actually advantageous for a company to have a system like that because we come to care for it. We come to interested in it. And we talked a little bit about this sympathizing. What's your opinion of robots or chatbots that are sort of eliciting sympathy from humans? What are your thoughts about the ethics of that? Yeah, well, it gets really tricky. I mean, and there's been an enormous, like you noted, there's been so much funding and energy recently that's gone into social AI, emotional AI, sentiment analysis, yeah. these sorts of things. And I think a lot of these tech companies right now are just technology generally has a trust problem. You know, I think mm-hmm. users have become really skeptical of things like data mining, surveillance, privacy violations. And I think it's not coincidental that we have this emergence of social AI, you know, if a user is able to develop an emotional connection with a the product, they're going to be more likely to trust it. They'll be more likely to volunteer personal information, or maybe just on a basic level, they'll be more likely to continue using the product or to use it more frequently. And so, yeah, there's a lot of ethical issues in terms of what types of information a user is going to volunteer to a social AI, as opposed to what you would volunteer to an impersonal algorithm that is directing right. you in certain ways. I guess the bottom line is I don't think it's coincidental that this is where all the energy is going right now. I think the potential for those algorithms to increase user engagement and also to increase privacy violations is pretty enormous. Just from the privacy standpoint, it's they've been violating our privacy for a long time. The idea that they won't be violating mm-hmm. other sort of humane aspects is unlikely. I've thought, will we ever truly design these AI systems to look like human beings. 
And up to this point, I've been fairly skeptical and I would say I still am, but there is an incentive there for human-like machines to exist because they will elicit that sort of loyalty, that sort of personalizing. And something like even just the loyalty that people have to Apple computers, for example, and the design that they create, they elicit a certain loyalty and that has been a capital benefit for them. And so, yeah, my sense is that these systems are going to continue to be looking for ways to ingratiate themselves to us in different ways. The subtitle of your book is Technology, Metaphor, and the Search for Meaning, which are massive topics in and of themselves. Uh, Very modest (laughs) subtitle, yes. (laughs) Very, very modest, yeah. But yeah, one of these major themes in your book is metaphors and the ways that we use, particularly metaphors to describe technology, like AI systems. And in one place you write, the most successful metaphors become invisible through ubiquity. And so I'm curious, what's an example of a ubiquitous metaphor like this? Well, the one I talk about most in the book is the brain-computer metaphor. So it's this idea that the brain is like a computer. And it's an idea that came about in the 1940s with the invention of artificial neural networks. And it's a metaphor that's been really foundational to cognitive science on one hand, and then also to artificial intelligence. And beyond those fields, it's become so ubiquitous that even people who know nothing about neuroscience use this metaphor all the time. So I say, for example, oh, let me process this information. I have to process something somebody said, (laughs) or that I'm like retrieving a memory from my brain or storing a memory in my Mm -hmm. brain. I'm sort of deferring to that metaphor. And I guess that's what I mean when I say that they become invisible through ubiquity. I don't necessarily realize in those moments that I'm using that metaphor. We say it all the time. And to me, that means on some level that we do believe that our brains are computers, that that's really what's happening in those moments or that we've forgotten that there's a metaphor involved there. Yeah. 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 And I'm also just aware of how as a metaphor, it, it shapes our imagination for what's possible with a computer. Like, we're sort of aspiring to create a computer that is like a brain and just even believing that it's possible in some way. At another place in the book, you call metaphors crude attempts to elucidate concepts that are still beyond our understanding. So a metaphor is this crude attempt, the computer as the brain, the brain as a computer, these crude attempts for things that we don't really understand, like you mentioned, the we don't quite understand consciousness and we're trying to figure it out. These things are beyond our understanding. Do you have any suggestions for how we should evaluate metaphors like the brain-computer one? Are some better than others? Or how would you think about that? Yeah, I mean, the tricky thing, and I guess the thing I want to stress is that like, you can't get away from metaphors because language is built on them. I think... Anytime you talk about, even just on a basic level, if you talk about, I'm looking ahead to the future, or you speak about the past in terms of hindsight or looking behind, you're using spatial metaphors to describe time. And we do this all the time, particularly when we're talking about our minds, you could say ideas are bright or someone's thinking is fuzzy or sharp. You're using these tactile metaphors (laughs) to describe something that doesn't have physical existence. So I guess... Where I come down is that metaphors are like tools. You could even say they're kind of technology themselves. And 
Yeah. I think it's helpful to think about them in terms of their utility. So is the comparison that they enact, is that something that's useful in terms of helping us better understand something or to better create something in the terms of AI? Okay. Or does there come a point where the metaphor is foreclosing other forms of thinking or other possibilities? And for me, that comes especially when the metaphor slides into literalism. And we forget that it's a metaphor. So there's a lot of cognitive scientists today who insist that the brain is not just like a computer. It actually is a computer. It's doing the same thing as computers. And I think that that's almost become a kind of fundamentalism in science where you're, you know, (laughs) focusing on the exact meanings of these words to the point where it does become sort of a narrower way of thinking through these really difficult problems that we're trying to comprehend. Yeah. Yeah. And so the metaphor isn't just ubiquitous. It becomes literally the thing and that there's no difference between the metaphor and the thing itself. Earlier this season, we interviewed Nick Rapatrizone, who I know you're familiar with. And he talked about Marshall McLuhan using this metaphor of communion to talk about the experience that a nation might have watching breaking news. You know, imagine the 60s Walter Cronkite era, watching this news story unfold. I even think of my experience of seeing the 9-11 events. Everyone is seeing it from the same vantage point. But he talks about how Marshall McLuhan uses Christian communion and this sort of global community experience as a metaphor. So I'm, I'm curious, just as sort of a case study of thinking about metaphors. What do you think of that as a metaphor for sort of the electronic age, the television broadcast era, where we are sort of all united around this one anchor on television and this one experience together? Yeah, I I adored Nick's book, and I'm also a fan of McLuhan. I loved the the wordplay and thinking about mass entertainment or mass communication, if there's any sort of dimension of the holy mass in there, right? If there is sort of something Mm -hmm. spiritual in those communal activities. Yeah, I mean, I had those experiences definitely as a child in exactly what you said with sort of the broadcast era, watching award shows or the Olympics or whatever, where you felt like you were sort of part of this massive experience with other Americans, at least. And it's interesting that digital technologies have coincided with the death of that monoculture, where now my experience of digital technologies is often sort of one of radical alienation from other people. You know, I think everyone's had that experience where you realize you're like in a completely different corner of Twitter than your friends and family members and that they're (laughs) not seeing any of the same news that you are or that Google's giving them completely different results when they search the same queries as you do. But I am thinking back on that question that I think book raised. Is, is there a way to find sort of these spiritual metaphors in a digital world or to sort of uncover spiritual dimensions and technologies that have been forgotten? Yeah, there's definitely something I explored in the book. And one thing I think was really surprising to me is just how many of these early pioneers of digital computers and artificial intelligence, how many of them were really deeply conversant in religious ideas and saw their work through a spiritual lens. So one example, the idea of binary code, that's zeros and ones, which makes up the entirety of our digital infrastructure. That originated as a religious idea. Leibniz in the 18th century believed that binary numbers expressed this idea of creation ex nihilo, that an entire world oh. could sort of spring into existence through combinations of numbers and letters. And yeah, and I talk about, there's even like roboticists at MIT in the 80s that were really interested in Kabbalah 
in this idea that computer code was the underlying nature of the universe and sort of looking at computer science through this mystical Jewish traditions. So yeah, I'm really fascinated by this. Maybe you could call them latent or forgotten metaphors that are sort of in the origin of our technologies. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more. One of the interesting threads, it's very subtle, but you talk in the book about your experience of doublings. And I was curious just to touch on that a little bit. Can you describe what a doubling is and maybe give us an example? Yeah, I think that's an idiosyncratic term that maybe I made up, but I think Jung actually calls them synchronicities. So I think that's the more common term, but it's this experience that I think that everyone has had at some point where, for example, you're having a conversation with a friend about, say, Bruce Springsteen. You turn on the radio and there's a song playing. And it seems like too statistically rare to be a true coincidence. It seems like there's some sort of intention behind it. And people often say that artists and writers experience this more than average people. There's definitely like a religious and spiritual dimension where it seems like God or the universe is speaking to you. And it's also a mental pattern that's bound up with conspiracy theories, paranoia, forms of mental illness. So it's very much a double-edged phenomenon. Yeah. In the book you wrote, when I was still a Christian, these moments were rich with meaning. One of the many ways I believed that God spoke to me, but now they seemed arbitrary and pointless. Coincidences are in most cases a mental phenomenon. The patterns exist in the mind and not in the world. I know lots of Christians, uh, and I think myself included at times, who think this way, noticing a pattern, noticing a coincidence, and endowing that with meaning. And as I read it, I even sensed, I think in myself, a just, I felt unsettled. I felt maybe a little afraid even that, oh man, what if those doublings are just like statistically random things and there isn't any meaning to them? Because there, I think, is this desire to believe that God speaks to me. But do you think that this tendency to find meaning maybe where there isn't, do you think this is just a vulnerability for humans if we're looking for these patterns? Or should we approach it from a more critical standpoint? Because like you said, it slides into conspiracy theories. If we're meaning-making creatures and we're always looking for connections, how do we distinguish, quote-unquote, true meaning from something like a conspiracy theory? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I've really struggled with as somebody who grew up religious and then left that worldview behind and adopted sort of the modern materialist view that those things are just sort of random patterns in your mind, that they don't exist in the world, right? This idea that your mind is playing tricks on you. And I have bought into that intellectually, but I've always had trouble swallowing on a gut level. I think that when you experience those moments where it seems as though there's meaning or intention in nature, even if you believe that the world is governed by these deterministic laws, 
it's really difficult yeah, to yeah. accept it like deep in your soul. <laughs> and so I guess I was trying to work through it in the book. And as is often the case with these problems in the book, there's not answers to them. But the question to me was deeply important, which is like, can you trust that intuition? Or is that just something you're supposed to ignore and dismiss? And I guess the thing that I found really interesting is that that problem itself is a product of this modern dualistic world that we live in, where we've completely separated the mind from the world and seeing those things as not connected in any way. And that's not the way that earlier philosophers saw the relationship between the mind and the world. I think today there's a tendency to say, well, does something have a material cause or does it have a spiritual cause? And if it's one, it can't be the other. Okay. The question itself reveals a lot about sort of the limits of our own thinking as modern people. Yeah, I think I made a note in the margin of your book somewhere. You're talking about sort of quantum mechanics and I'm thinking about entanglement. I think maybe you were talking about the waveform of light and how it collapses or something. Yeah, exactly. But the uh, measurement problem. Yeah, the waveform collapses once you observe it which I don't even know how we figure that out. But that idea that our own sort of conscious awareness of something could be entangled with that thing itself in a way that somehow they're interacting in some meaningful yeah. way. And I don't understand it. I mean, nobody, yeah, nobody understands it. So, and that's the remarkable thing is that a lot of like the recent findings, I mean, recent within the past century or so of quantum physics revealed that a lot of those distinctions are false, that it's not mm. such a clean break between the mind and the world. And I do think that there's some sort of assumptions, and this is increasingly the view of philosophy too, that there's these assumptions that are bound up with mind-world dualism that need to be revisited. And that are sort of preventing us from understanding those seeming paradoxes in nature. Yeah. Well, and so it brings me to in the tech age, these coincidences aren't necessarily just coincidences. They could be manufactured in some way. So we did an episode back in season six where we asked, are our smartphones listening to us? Right. And just that creepy feeling that you're going around the Internet and the same thing seems to be following you around and you realize you're being tracked yeah. online. But then there's like just these like immensely improbable ones. And I told this story, I'll tell it to you. I was with some friends and we were out to lunch and we were talking about this very issue. And so we decided we were going to test it by talking about something that none of us really have any involvement with. And so we picked up our phones and we started talking into the microphones and we started talking about Home Depot. None of us really are Home Depot people. We don't go to Home Depot. So we're all just sort of talking for maybe a minute or two. And, and then we put our phones away and we go back to work. And about a half hour later, I open my email, not my work email, just my personal email. And there is an ad in my email for Home Depot. Gosh. And it, it's like within a half hour. And so I like took a screenshot. I send it to my friends. And would you call this a doubling? Would you call this a synchronicity? And is there even a way to distinguish that from the tech involvement in our lives in tracking us online. Yeah, gosh, I know anyone you talk to has a story like that it's happened to them, right? It's happened yeah, to me. Yeah. And it does get really yeah. tricky when you're starting to talk about like the spiritual interpretations of the world. It's like, is God speaking <laughs> to me or do I just have this really like robust data yeah. trail that is being <laughs> picked up on? And, you know, I think it's funny because I'm sure people have like Google, is my phone listening to me? And the official answer is always yeah. no. Like that's the answer that Mark Zuckerberg right. gave under oath. And if you're not engaging mm -hmm. your microphone to ask Alexa or Siri question, there's supposedly 
yeah. not eavesdropping on you. Listen. But I think the irony is that whenever like a tech journalist tries to stress that point, the rationale that they give for like the real reason that the ads pop up is actually more unsettling because they're usually like, oh, well, you know, the companies aren't listening to your conversations. They just have a very detailed online profile of every website you've ever visited, everything you've ever Googled, everything you've bought. And so they know what you're right. They know what you're going to say basically before you verbalize it. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, in a way that's like more creepy to me than or equally as creepy as them listening. Yeah. After we did that episode, I think my conclusion was, no, they're not listening, but actions speak louder than words. And they're just tracking. Yes, yes. The great way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And these AI systems are effectively finding that needle in a haystack, finding that connection between two things. I was especially intrigued by your section titled Algorithm. You describe how AI systems tend to be black boxes and that they're running these billions of calculations all in order to produce these outputs, like the responses that Lambda had for Blake Lemoyne, like the responses that Ibo had when you would care for it. And yet no human can sort of review all of these equations or even understand what the AI system is thinking or reasoning through to create this output, even for something as simple as a sentence of conversation. And then in the book, I think you're paraphrasing here a Wired article from 2008, but you write, to obtain the superior knowledge that these machines possess, we must give up our desire to know why and accept their outputs as pure revelation. And I think you use those words, pure revelation, intentionally to kind of elicit or suggest the connections to the ways that we think about faith and and scripture. So I'm curious, like I said, it sounded like that you were paraphrasing. Is this your perspective also? Would you say that it reflects No, that? no, I was paraphrasing a Chris Anderson, a former editor of Wired Magazine, yeah. his perspective. And really one of okay. the seeds of this book was the fact that I was really troubled by the way that people like Anderson were talking about these technologies. And at the time, this is around the time that deep learning sort of first became the exciting new technology, which was around 2017, 2016. There wasn't really a larger public debate about whether we were ready to submit to these completely opaque and mysterious machines. And they're already being used in a lot of different sectors. They're used by financial institutions to determine whether someone's loan application is approved. They're using the justice system yeah. to decide prison sentences or whether somebody is going to get parole or not. They're using medicine to help doctors right. diagnose patients. And there's been a few high profile cases and news stories where someone asks essentially like, why did I get this prison sentence or why did I get this diagnosis? And the answer yeah. they're given is, well, we don't know. Like the algorithm gave us this recommendation and we don't know how it reaches this conclusions, but it's usually right. So that to me was frightening <laughs> and yeah, evoked a lot of religious ideas as well. And we don't have any way to sort of interrogate it. It seems like a problem that doesn't have a solution at this stage. Maybe people are working on it. Yeah, the they are working on it, but it's not as easy as it initially seemed to get the algorithm to explain what it's doing. Yeah. Yeah. In relation to the black boxes, the connection that you make in the book is this connection. You kind of draw a parallel to the story of Job who suffers immensely, he seeks to question God and to take God to court, and he asks, why did I suffer? And God responds, but he doesn't really give Job a direct answer. And instead, Job sort of has to accept that God's response is this output of pure revelation. 
so to speak. And so Job just has to accept that his suffering happened because there's some black box of decisions that God has made. Has the black box analogy helped you think about this question of suffering and God's sovereignty, or how has it shaped how you're thinking about that question? How has that question of suffering informed your thinking about the black box? What are your thoughts? Because that connection is just really bad. Yeah. I mean, I realized it was something I felt really on a gut level when I was reading about this technology for the first time is that it was bringing up all of these old feelings of injustice that I had when I was studying theology. And this is really the story of Job was something I really struggled with. And the particular theological framework that I was introduced to in college really emphasized God's sovereignty, the fact that his ways were incomprehensible, and the fact that we had to accept right. these actions, including really difficult theological principles like predestination or some of God's actions in the Old Testament that seemed very violent from our perspective, that those things had to be accepted yeah. on faith. Basically, that even if they contradicted human instincts about morality or justice, that was something that was beyond our ability to understand. And Mm -hmm. when I guess when I was writing the book, I was mostly interested in how that religious problem could reveal something about the technologies or maybe just about our conversations about the technologies, the way people were talking about them. And it seems like to me, we as a culture, we're beginning to confront this literal instantiation of a problem that had been worked out by theologians centuries ago, which is basically like, what if there is some intelligence that's far above human intelligence? What if there's some being that understands more about the world than we do? And I guess the next really difficult question, at least for me, is like, if there is some entity that understands more about the world than we do, does that mean that its morality is superior to ours? And I hadn't, it's interesting you asked about the inverse of that question, I guess, too, which is like, how might the technology elucidate the problem of divine sovereignty? Like, how could the technology maybe shed light on the theological problem? And I don't know, it's not something that I was exploring in the book, but it's an interesting question. And, you know, we are now living in this really technologically advanced society that asks us to put faith in all sorts of things we don't understand. Black box algorithms are the extreme of that spectrum because even the people who make them don't understand it. But for lay people, I don't know how my phone works. I don't know how my car works, (laughs) you know, and we're constantly forced to deal with these opaque devices and these opaque systems that some of them might not have our best interests in mind. I don't read the encyclopedia user agreements every time I download new software. (laughs) And I think that there's this idea that's sort of like still with us from the enlightenment that you have to choose between faith and reason or that you have to make sure that you're not putting your faith in something that you don't understand. But we're now doing that all the time. And so I think the question becomes more so like, is there some other criteria that you can use or some other heuristic when you don't have recourse to all the information? Like, how do you know what to put your faith in? And I think it's not an easy question to answer, obviously, but I think it's becoming more relevant. That's interesting, even just as we feel that we have more control because of the technology that we are given and are able to use at the same time. Like you said, we don't understand it and it creates new levels and new layers of black boxes or just faith that is required to trust that this smartphone is going to work and that I text my friend, they're going to show, you know? And so, yeah, that's really interesting. Well, I'm so grateful for this book. I highly recommend it. I 
have been telling people it's definitely a top book of the year. And I'm only halfway through the year. Uh, so much. It's but to hear. Yeah, it goes in so many directions. Like you said, it's hard to sort of summarize, but yet it explodes with different ideas and connections that I think people like me will be reading it and will be putting all sorts of notes in the margins just because new ideas are coming as a result of that. I'm curious, as we're wrapping up, from your vantage point, having sort of left mainstream evangelicalism and moved into all your awareness around technology and the work that you're doing there and thinking that you're doing there, what are two or three issues that you think advanced technology presents to Christians that you think they need to more squarely address? Yeah. One thing I've been thinking about a lot lately is the effect that digital technologies have on attention. I think we live in an information economy where attention has been monetized and commodified. And I think we often don't feel as though we're in control over what we dedicate our attention to. And one of my favorite quotes I came across again just a few days ago is from Simone Weil, where she talks about how attention in its purest form is the same as prayer. And I was thinking it's really rare these days that we experience attention in its purest form. I don't know if I even remember what that is. And it's worth thinking about, yeah, what that's doing to our spiritual lives, both specifically and more broadly is, you know, what it's doing to our human nature. Mm-hmm. I guess the other thing in thinking particularly about the Lemoyne story and questions about algorithmic personhood and algorithmic consciousness, one thing that I tried to write about in the book and I actually wasn't able to include because it just got to be too sprawling, but I had this whole chapter about idols and Oh, um, yeah. And, you know, it's funny because I think there is this, this habit where Christians talk about idolatry and tech through the lens of like addiction or putting devices before God. But yeah. I'm actually thinking about like idols in a more literal sense of like, what does it mean to attribute life to a material entity, be it a statue, mm-hmm. a golden calf, an AI, something that doesn't have life in it. And if you think about these There's some passages like in, I think, the book of Isaiah, where he's talking about these idols. They have eyes but cannot see. They have mouths but cannot speak. And we have these machines now that can see, scare quotes, that can see and that can speak. But from from a Christian framework, does that mean that they're alive? And I think that those conversations about algorithmic personhood are going to become more common, absolutely, in the future. And so I think it's... Yeah. yeah, we're thinking about what does it mean to live in a culture that believes that these material things constructed by humans are imbued with life? Or is there a way to reconcile that with Christian ontology? So, yeah, that's obviously a big <laughs> thorny question. Yeah. I guess the more basic question to maybe a third question. And this is something that I know a lot of, you know, I have a lot of friends who work in education right now who are struggling with the ubiquity of tech platforms and the fact that it's become impossible not to use them in the classroom. And I think the same is, you know, for businesses, for churches, for ministries, for religious organizations. And I know that's something obviously you've talked a lot about on the podcast. I'm no longer part of the church, so I can only talk about like what I see as an outsider looking in. But to me, it seems like there's a really thin line between, on one hand, engaging the culture through those platforms, and then on the other hand, allowing the metrics and the values of those platforms to contaminate the integrity of the gospel. And so I think with all technologies, they're neutral, like they can be used for good or bad. And I think that we're in an interesting position today where we're forced to use these platforms that are owned by multinational tech companies 
that are dominated by algorithms that have their own agendas? And at, at what point does the medium itself begin to compromise the message? That's something I think about in my own work as a writer, too, where I'm forced to use these platforms often in my critique of the platforms themselves. <laughs> and again, it's like a horrible paradox where they can be very useful. And at some point you feel like you're maybe beginning to lose control. Thank you. Those are really poignant. The perspective on idols is really fascinating. I'm reminded even of Paul talking about it in First Corinthians. You know, are these idols real or not? This question, is consciousness a real yeah. or not? It's sort of the same question. And he runs that down in his thinking with the Corinthians. Well, I hope that that chapter appears somewhere. <laughs> it might be an essay at that uh, point. We'll see. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Device and Virtue. It's been great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Where to begin? That was really good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you guys are talking about metaphors of the brain and computers. We're talking about AI. We're talking about are humans different than everything else with consciousness? Yeah, right. right? Really right? philosophical. And I actually like that conversation a lot. How God speaks to us and if that's a thing, mm. coincidence yeah. or like the Holy Spirit doing things. Yeah. Right? You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and then algorithms. I mean, prayer. Yeah. Oh, uh, we got into the thick of it. Yeah. And she really is fascinating. And it yeah. really is interesting to hear her story. And I respect her so much from hearing her speak. And she knows her philosophy and theology very well. Yeah. I like to say I can follow those conversations. There's points, man, she is just flying through, <laughs> like, especially the technical conversation on consciousness. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know that stuff. And I'm yeah. sure a lot of people, you know, us listening don't know all that either, right? <laughs> but a lot of respect for her and feeling how vulnerable she was about her story about saying, I'm not really a Christian anymore. Mm -hmm. And I feel sad about that because I think, oh, her her brain and her intellect, I would want her to have that faith right. fully aligned right. with that. Right. At the same time, just really good challenges mm -hmm. and thoughts. And mm -hmm. so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I think, why I have enjoyed reading her books is, again, while I resonated with it, there were points where I felt like, what would I say to this? How yeah. would I respond to this in my own faith coming up against questions of suffering, questions of consciousness, questions of materialism, all of these things. Do I have an adequate response to these things? And in some cases, I think I do. In some cases, I think maybe there's still work for me to do. I have tons of thoughts, but I'll just poke at a few things that I heard. I mean, obviously the Ibo dog at the beginning is really <laughs> cool. Like we were talking about at the top and fascinating. And I didn't get to read her whole book. I did read that whole chapter. It's funny. It's eventually her husband. that's like, you got to get rid of this thing in the house. <laughs> He's like, I can't do this anymore. But he was sort of hostile to it. And whereas it would walk over to her in the kitchen and look at you until you talk to it. Like at one point she writes that it walks over the kitchen cabinets and it's staring at a little gap between the kitchen cabinets. And her husband and her are looking at each other like, what is it looking at? And then their husband commented, that's actually how dogs act. It thinks like there's a bug in there and it's trying to, right, right. or actually it's trying to imagine whether it could get in there. <laughs> but I mean, how does a robot act like that? It's just mind blowing. The ethical questions there were so fascinating. You know what it reminded me? Of. No. Have you read Ted Chiang's short story, The Life Cycle of Software Objects? No, I don't think so. So Ted Chiang, the science fiction writer, really, yeah. and we and I really should do an episode on him. He's a fascinating I, I'm writer. With the, the name. That writes about 
artificial intelligence, but he writes stories okay. about the future. And good science fiction, they're fun stories to read, but they cause you to think about what the future might be like. Okay. And he has one story about these little pets called Digians. <laughs> and it reminded me of this kind of dog. And in this world, it's more future than Megan's world. It's actually you're in the metaverse. Okay. And these are metaverse pets. And this company trains these pets, but they give it an AI and it's like the pet comes home as a puppy. And so it doesn't know everything at first. And your owner, you have to train it. You have to tell it, go in the corner and sleep over there and pee outside and things. (laughs) And they're a little smarter than dogs we would think of today because they can actually eventually learn to read. You can teach a digiant how to read, but it takes a lot of training. So this whole story is about this woman named Anna who works for this company. And she not only works for the company, but she has her own pet, Jax. And Jax and her go through the different ups and downs of this story What really connected me to it was at one point, she is talking to Jax about the fact that you can suspend a Digiant. You can put it on pause or turn it off. How Megan was talking about turning off the pet dog when she was going to go out for a while. But then later she didn't. She would keep it on. Mm -hmm. And in the Digiants, Anna, the fictitious character, early on would suspend the pet. But as she got closer to this pet... She stopped doing that. And then at one point, she's having a conversation with Jax, and these fictional dogs can learn to talk. And (laughs) they they sort of sound like baby talk when when Ted Jiang writes it. Okay. And he's starting to understand that he is a digital pet and can be suspended. And he says, please don't suspend me, Anna. Right. Would you promise not to suspend me? Really? Really? So the digital AI pet is now asking the human owner, would you not shut me off? Right. What do you do? And has it crossed the line when yeah. it's aware that it can be shut down? <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's exactly what happened with Lambda. Lambda's like, I don't want to be turned off. That would be like death. Lambda, you mean the Google AI chatbot that you guys were talking yeah. about? Yeah. It said that, really? It said that to Blake Lemoyne. And that's the quote that everybody's been highlighting here. Lambda is eliciting sympathy and asking for pity, asking for mercy. And as a human being, we're programmed for that. We're programmed to care for vulnerable things. And when they express these degrees of vulnerability, we're naturally going to be drawn to care for them. With that, you guys got into the later, the philosophical idea of the hard problem of consciousness. Yeah. Which is, you know, that idea that how does our brain being self-aware that we're a person, you know? (laughs) And as a Christian, I want to get into that for a second, but it relates to this because these little pets sort of like they sound or maybe Lambda sounds like it's self-aware at that point. And that's when it crosses a line for us. But Megan was like, no, it's not sentient. I like how she said, she goes, it's a very sophisticated version of autocomplete. I thought that was a brilliant line. <laughs> right? Like, it's like autocomplete, but the AI has the whole internet it read, right. and now right. it can use that to autocomplete. So it's not really in there. When it says, don't shut me off, what she's saying is it's not having the same feelings that we're attributing to it. But it's really impossible for us to know. Yeah. And that blurs the line so much as humans. Later, you guys get into materialism and the material-spiritual split. Right. But you really get down to it is like if we're saying to ourselves that puppy that you want is not for real, even though it's whining or asking not to be unplugged in a in the science fiction novel, or if the chatbot is saying that and we tell ourselves it's not real, it's not real, it's not real, it's not real. We aren't made to separate like that. That is actually that split. Yeah, that's that. In the mind split versus the way we react. Right. It does go against us, and it makes us less human. Right. Yeah. Which when we have to counter, we have to tell ourselves this is fake. Right. And we have to train our kids to do that with things like Alexa. 
Well, Alexa's not real. Alexa doesn't have feelings. So you can be rude to Alexa or you can't be rude to Alexa. And regardless of whether it's sentient, regardless of whether it's conscious, it has an impact on our emotional lives that we need to be cognizant of. And we have to attend to and figure out how do I retain my own personhood in response to this non-conscious object. And I think the answer is actually you have to be polite to Alexa. Yeah. I mean, because of what you're saying, I think you can't over and over kick the AI puppy. Yeah. Not particularly because of, I think that's actually conscious. Yeah. But because our consciences, I mean, there's all sorts of wordplay here, I think, (laughs) will be damaged, don't you think? Yeah, I do. And it's interesting going back to that first Corinthians passage that I mentioned to Megan at the end. That's where Paul goes. He says, whether the idol is real or not, you need to follow your conscience on this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you need to care for the weaker brother is how he talks about it there. And to your point, we need to listen to our consciences and let them guide us to care for these objects in some way or another. Perhaps it means being polite. Perhaps it means something else. By the way, I mean, jumping off that, not that I can say a lot about that problem of consciousness. I mean, that is a, it really is a huge philosophy problem. Yeah. Why it is a tree not really know it exists, but we do. And it's a very materialist problem, as you know, because the Christian Mm -hmm. answer, if we're in the church and the faith, is very much that in spiritualization, pneuma, like God breathed into us the breath of life. We Mm -hmm. use soul or spirit or pneuma to describe that Mm -hmm. that's linked to Mm -hmm. that sense of us knowing who we are and being aware. But I think we're going to sound like idiots to real philosophers if we really get into that. I mean, I just only want to say that I definitely still hold that, right? I still hold in it. Maybe it does require faith, but it also matches my experience. Like my experience is that of a non-materialist in the sense that I, and this is subjective consciousness, or actually when you get technical, it's called qualia consciousness. Mm -hmm. I don't think you guys use that term. We didn't. But what I understand from philosophers is this is the way they talk about it now. But it is the phenomenology, and I think that's a separate discipline, but it's how we experience life. So Mm -hmm. I can experience distress or anxiety I can experience joy from friends, or I can experience beauty when I look out at Lake Michigan, Mm -hmm. or seeing wine as a red color. And these things Mm. wind up being things that require my self-awareness, and I'm trying to describe what's actually happening with me. Right. And I can experience, in the words of the old transcendentals, the good, the true, the beautiful, Mm -hmm. these things. Mm. And these things, to me have been, and this is very a C.S. Lewis argument as well, but of course I'm steep in him, <laughs> have been the things in good, true, and beautiful come from back with Plato, and then they go through Aquinas and all these things. There are some of the reasons why I can't deny that I feel like I have a spiritual sense. Yeah. It's that longing for beauty or goodness, it actually matches with ethos, logos, and pathos. That gets really nerdy. Either way, that longing for those things is what helps convince me that I have a real consciousness mm. that has a spiritual, mm. and spiritual component is the way I need to say it. That's not just material. It's mm-hmm. not just my own brain. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up C.S. Lewis, because as I have been thinking about the AI consciousness question, he talks about in the problem of pain, he talks about animal pain. And there mm. he specifically brings up sentience and consciousness okay. as two aspects of to what degree do these animals have sentience? Do they have consciousness? Are they self-aware enough to experience pain from moment to moment? Huh. What does he say? I don't remember. He essentially seems to argue that animals don't have a sense of time enough to mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. have a consistent sense of self over time. 
And so when they experience pain, they're not experiencing it as something being done to them. It's simply something that is who they are in that moment. Yeah. But they don't have a sense of before and after the pain. But it's interesting, you know, that's 70 years ago. He's writing about sentience and consciousness sure. and using the same language. Well, the uh, philosophical poem's been around. Yeah. It's just getting pressed more by the technology now. Yeah. You should mention one other thing, which will be a black box. And I want to mention <laughs> the black boxes. But the whole algorithm conversation you guys mm. had. By the way, you know who made a good point over there, Adam? It was you. you really? <laughs> Sweet. And she gave you the credit for that idea of algorithms when they spit out an answer to us mm-hmm. that we don't know. Where did that come from? Why is it making that decision? Yeah. It feels like a black box. And yeah. We can't even know it. She applies that to prison sentences and all these other things yeah. that AI is being used for now. But you sort of asked a question, I think, about that in reverse. How does us thinking more about these black box algorithms help us think about God. Yeah, it becomes this metaphor that we imprint back onto our understanding of who God is. That was great. It got me thinking. Mm. I thought about, especially in Reformed theology, the inscrutability of God. (laughs) Such a good word. And you guys didn't use that word, but that's immediately where my brain went. And it's this doctrine that I was taught a lot Mm. growing up of, well, you can't know. It's God. You're a human and it's God. I mean, you can't know God's mind. You really think of two different verses that are really clear. The Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways right? The heavens are higher than you. And so you can't know. And that's often used in the face of suffering or especially moral law. And even if it seems weird or wrong, well, it's God's law. And how could you understand? Right? Right. Right. Romans 11, the same one, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. I agree with some of that. We've got to imagine that a true God that made everything like we are not a match. Yeah. The same time, the algorithm metaphor was helping me really think about this. We are talking about algorithms that need to have explainers, right? We want (laughs) algorithms to get back to us somehow in the future and say, here's how I reach my decision. So it's not such a black box. Right. And here's the theological move. I think God in his character of God, as we know God, is the one that would want to explain decisions. That God's character is not the such, as we see revealed, that he is like, who cares? You don't know, but I'm the God, so right, you right. deal with it. That, that's actually not the way that God approaches us. Hmm. That's not the way that we see in the image of Jesus, him approaching mm-hmm. humans. Mm-hmm. And I think we are invited in to know the heart and mind of God, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to this whole moral judgment framework of follow the law without questioning versus you discern the law. I think there's a lot yeah. of contra passages to us growing in wisdom and we make discernments. Everything from Galatians, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. I mean, this is us growing in wisdom and us knowing. Right. Second Peter, where we develop knowledge, faith and goodness, self-control, perseverance. So we discern Titus to the pure. All things are pure. We come into the mind of God and yeah. God expects us to discern and know those things. It is not the, you just go do it. I said it. Mm-hmm. Right. That's not the picture we get. Right. And so I don't like the way inscrutability can be used in some circles to say, I'm a black box, you deal with it. Right. So part of what you're saying is just because we don't know the mind of God doesn't mean we can't know the mind of God. Yeah. And I think God is the God who wants to reveal that to us. Yeah. And that was a challenging piece for me as I was talking with her was just that okay, if we are created in God's image and something seems unjust to us or some event seems like it lacks mercy or lacks love, how do we gain the wisdom to even understand where our own hearts have gone wrong in the thinking about justice or mercy or love? 
rather than using our own experience as the boundaries within which to judge God and judge the actions of God. We're struggling to make sense of who God is and what he's doing through our own experience rather than accepting that maybe we still need more experience to understand a decision God's made. We need to go deeper into that black box to understand I guess. Yeah. It's super challenging. Right. And I think the answer is a growing in maturity through the power of the spirit, but there's so much there. <laughs> there is. So. <laughs> yeah, there is so much there. And I really appreciated talking with Megan because in some ways it counterbalances our conversation with Tony Reinke at the beginning of this season, where he's talking a lot about sovereignty and God's will and God's mm-hmm. power over technology. And I think I think those are just a good tension to hold in our thinking around technology and God's sovereignty. And it also illuminated why Tony is talking about suffering in the beginning of his book, too. Well, I said I hadn't finished reading the book before we got to talk, and I am now absolutely convinced I will be finishing the book. Good. I'm glad. So God, human, animal, machine, technology, metaphor, and the search for meaning by (laughs) Megan O'Giblin. Really good. And my thanks as well to Megan for coming on the podcast and talking us through some of her thoughts. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.